Good morning. Uh, before we start here, let me just uh, open us in prayer. Father God, I pray that as I speak, that your spirit will be speaking through me to bring your word to the people. And I pray that you would open the ears and the hearts of everyone here to hear what, not what I have to say, but what you have to say. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I want you to help me to start off here by going through a little exercise. I want you to stop and think for a few seconds. Who do you think of when you hear the word hero? Now, just think on that for a few seconds. Now, maybe you think of someone like this. You know the tagline, faster than a speeding bullet, stronger than a locomotive, able to leap tall buildings in a single bound. After all, Superman is the quintessential superhero. I mean, who apart from a hero could get away with dress sense like that? A cape and underpants on the outside? Or maybe you like your heroes to rely more on their skill and talent instead of brute strength. Maybe someone like this. After all, someone who can perform an operation where they solve their problem with a dicky ticker by installing a mini nuclear reactor and then building an amazingly advanced military exoskeleton powered by their new artificial heart has got to be some kind of hero, right? Or maybe you think of someone like this. Sophisticated, suave, and with a license to kill to boot. He's sure to be the guy to save the day, right? Especially if your problem is an egotistical supervillain with a secret lair somewhere in the middle of the ocean and a burning desire for world domination. Or maybe when you think of a hero, you might think of someone like Sam Childers, the machine gun preacher. Someone who takes on... Uh, Warlords who enforce people into child slavery by taking up arms to go and fight fire with fire, literally. When we're looking for a hero, when we're looking for a saviour, it's so easy to look for those who are strong, who are capable, who are smart. And you know what? This is what Israel did when they chose their first king. King Saul, he was a full head taller than anyone else. I have a little bit of an idea of what that's like living here in Hong Kong. <laughs> and, uh, and so he certainly stood out in the crowd. He was big, he was strong. They thought this is the perfect person to lead us into battle against the Canaanites, against the Philistines. He was the Arnold Schwarzenegger of his day or the Muhammad Ali of his day. He was the perfect physical specimen, the perfect person to lead them into battle. Everyone could see that he was going to be a great warrior, and they weren't wrong. He was a great warrior. Now, the problem with King Saul and the problem with every one of these type of leaders is that they all proved to be misfounded hopes. Not one of them is able to fulfill the dreams that we place upon them. And our hopes will prove to be misfounded in one of two ways. 
Either we will overestimate what their strengths are able to do. And we saw this, we see this when we read the Bible in the book of Judges. Every time God raised up a judge that was able to lead the Israelites into battle against the Canaanites or the Philistines. And every time after the judge, they fell back into submission against the, uh, the local Canaanites or Philistines. The second problem is when we do not anticipate what someone like this will be like as a hero once they have done what we wanted them to do. The thought of living under the rule of a misogynistic hedonist like James Bond or Tony Stark should give us cause to be skeptical about how appropriate it would be to want them to be our leader, to be someone to follow, to emulate, to depend upon. What would a society shaped like that be like? I don't think it would be a very good place for anyone to live. And likewise, a superman who is beyond any ability to keep in check because they are stronger than anyone else and cannot be hurt by anyone, had better be without any possibility at all of selfishness, vengeance, or arrogance, or we would find ourselves at the mercy of a tyranny far worse than any dictator in human history. And so it proved with King Saul. His military prowess was fairly appraised, but his temperament and his ego were not. His was an ego that needed to be stroked, he needed to be reminded how good he was how important he was, and how much the nation loved him. And as soon as he sensed that these were under threat, he became paranoid, using his army to conduct an elaborate manhunt in the wilderness to eliminate an outlaw he had created through his own paranoia. And this is where the Corinthian church was. They were looking for heroes that they could follow. We see that Paul talks about these super apostles in chapter 11 and compares himself with them. The Corinthian church had these people that they had put up on pedestals, these people who could boast about all of their strengths. But this is a dangerous place to look for heroes. No, the sort of hero we need is a completely different sort of hero. We need a hero like Rosa Parks. Next slide. You would not think that Rosa Parks was a hero by looking at her. She was a tiny, small woman. And though she was educated, there was nothing that would suggest that she would become one of the key figures in the American civil rights movement. Even her act of heroism was remarkably understated. She refused to stand up. At the time in the southern states of the U.S., the law separated public transport into sections for black people and white people. And it was common practice in her home city of Montgomery, Alabama, that if a white person needed a seat and none was available, they would clear a whole row of seats and get the black people out of those seats to go and stand up so a white person could sit down. 
Well, this time, when the driver asked her to stand up, she just said, no. And then when the driver said, well, I'm going to arrest you then, she said, well, you can do that. And so she was taken away and arrested. Her simple act of nonviolent resistance, and you know, I hesitate to use that word resistance because she didn't even resist arrest. She simply refused to bow to a corrupt system that actually went beyond the already unfair laws of the time. Her simple nonviolent resistance galvanized the black community to persevere for equality in society. Or you can take a hero like Mother Teresa, another tiny woman, and you can see how tiny she is there in that picture, who did not pull any punches in telling the world's leaders like Ronald Reagan that they needed to change their position on abortion in a speech that led to her being called the most powerful woman in the world. Now, have a look at that picture of her and think of that as being the most powerful woman in the world. And remember also that as a nun, she would have had no personal possessions of her own beyond what she was wearing there. Or you can take St. Francis of Assisi, who, saddened by the Crusades taking place at the time, sought to end the conflict, not by conquest or intimidating his opponents into submission, but instead by walking across the battle lines to the palace of the sultan and preaching the gospel to him. The sultan did not convert, but he did give Francis' order of monks permission to stay in the Holy Land to protect the Christian holy sites and the pilgrims going there. Which, if you know your history, was the original reason the Crusades had actually started. He was able to accomplish the original goal with no army, but just by going and preaching the gospel. Or you can take Paul. Originally he was known as Saul, and since he was from the tribe of Benjamin, that would have been because he was named after King Saul, who was also a Benjamite. Now I'm sure that growing up that would have been a point of pride, a connection with royalty, so to speak. And not the illegitimate royalty that the Jewish rulers of the time, the Herods, had, but an ancient royalty. As he mentions in chapter 11, verse 22, he has a pedigree as good as anyone's. And yet, he does not depend upon his pedigree. He was also educated under the top rabbi of his time. And yet, he does not depend upon his theological degrees or qualifications. It is interesting that after Paul has become a Christian, we don't see him being called Saul anymore. We see him being called Paul. Now, Saul is a Jewish name and Paul is a Greek name. And so perhaps some of this was to do with when he was in a Jewish audience and a Greek audience. But there were others, such as Barnabas, who were still called Barnabas when they were speaking to a Greek audience. They did not appear to change their name. A clue here may be in the fact that Paul means little. Perhaps Paul chose 
to use this name to remind himself that he is now little in his own eyes. Perhaps he is no longer trying to live up to his royal name, but instead trying to downplay his importance and his qualifications. And Paul explains to us where his power comes from, although he has many strengths. You know, despite what he say, it might say in chapter 11, verse 6, about not being classically trained as a speaker, or in the earlier letter to the Corinthians and 1 Corinthians about not coming with wise and persuasive words, Paul most definitely was an accomplished speaker. In Acts chapter 14, the people of Lystra began to worship Paul and Barnabas as gods. And they identify Paul as Hermes. Why? Because he is doing all of the speaking. And Hermes is the god of communication. The way that Paul spoke was so powerful, actually, that the people listening decided that he must be the embodiment of the God of communication. But Paul was not depending on his ability as a speaker. And as he says in chapter 12, as has been just read, he has spiritual and mystical experiences that can probably best be explained by comparing with space travel. You know, when, when he says the third heaven there, he's talking about Venus. And so when he says, I was taken, whether in the body or not, he doesn't know, to the third heaven, he's meaning taking to Venus. Now, that's pretty mind-blowing. And you can understand why he says, I don't know whether it was in the body or not. But he has obviously had an amazing mystical or spiritual experience there. But he emphasizes that he does not depend upon those things for his power. Where does his power come from? He says in verse 9 that God told him, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, he boasts and rejoices in his weaknesses, because in them God's power is made evident. And why was Paul saying this? Well, it goes back to the sort of heroes that the Corinthians were looking for. They were looking for super apostles, like in verse 11, people that they could look up to who could show their strengths, who had the best CVs and could could demonstrate that they were the people that everyone should look to. They were the, the supermen. They were the ironmen. They were the heroes that everyone should see were obviously qualified and capable and smart and strong. And you know what? The good news does not end there either because we too can become heroes like this. We need to make a conscious effort to release our dependence upon our strengths Now, I want to be very clear on this. This doesn't mean to deny that you have strengths, or this does not mean to never use your strengths. It means instead not to rely on them for success and power. The simple fact is is that the Christian life is too 
difficult for us to live in our own power. Our attempts will only result in either legalistic religiosity like the Pharisees or desperate attempts to hide our failings as we live a hypocritical double life. No, we must give up the idea of living the Christian life by our strengths, whether it be our physical strength or our intellectual prowess, whether it be our charisma, our social skills, our you know, thousand friends on Facebook or our, you know, amazing strength of willpower. Our best strength is not enough for the Christian life. It will only result in a corrupt perversion of the Christian life or in failure. Next, we must embrace our weaknesses. God promises to make his power evident, to make his power perfect even. Through our weaknesses. Now, one of the most effective evangelists in the 1990s was a young man named Steve Sawyer. Steve was born a hemophiliac, which means that his blood did not work properly. Whereas if we cut ourselves, our blood will clot and the bleeding will stop of itself in a, in a few minutes. Steve's blood did not, which meant that the smallest cut or bruise was terribly dangerous for him. And so he needed to have many blood transfusions for all those little knocks and scrapes and bruises that everyone just takes for granted as part of growing up. Now, from one of these blood transfusions, Steve contracted HIV and consequently full-blown AIDS. Steve's story of how he found God's love and purpose for his life in the midst of living with an incurable and incredibly stigmatized disease drew many of his fellow students to Christ. And for the last few years of his short life, he traveled around university campuses communicating God's message of love, hope, and forgiveness. And all of this would not have been possible if it were not for what any sensible person would consider his greatest weakness. He had AIDS. So we must release our dependence upon our strengths and we must embrace our weaknesses. And lastly, we must rely upon God's power. God's power is the only sufficient power to live the Christian life. To continue to serve with humility no matter what obstacles we're facing. To persevere no matter what hardship. To love while we are being hated back. Only by God's power are we able to do this. It is only by God's power that Steve Sawyer was able to find hope in a life cut short by AIDS. It was only in God's power that Mother Teresa and Rosa Parks were able to stand up to people much bigger and apparently more powerful than them. It was only through God's power that St. Francis was able to live a life of radical poverty or walk across the battle lines into the palace of the Sultan with the gospel message. And it was only through God's power that Paul was able to preach the gospel across the Roman world despite persecutions, imprisonments, beatings, and other hardships. And it was only through God's power that Paul was able to come to the Corinthians to 
commend himself with, that, with the message of the gospel, not through his own strength, but instead through God's power being made evident through his weaknesses. And this is a model that Jesus has set for us. We are told in Philippians that Jesus emptied himself of all of the divine powers that belonged to him while he was on earth. That he made himself weak. As weak as a baby, as we remember during this Advent season. And humble to the point that he let us nail him to a cross and kill him. But by God's power, he was raised from the dead. Shortly, we're going to be going downstairs for some baptisms. Baptism is a reminder of this exact same pattern. In going under the water, we are dying to ourselves, to our strengths, to our own power. And then as we rise again out of the water, we're reminded that we rise anew, Not to live in our own strength and power, but instead in our weakness, we trust in God's power to be made evident in us, to be made perfect in us. Power that is made perfect by God's grace working through our own weakness. Because his grace is all that we need. It is sufficient for us. Let me pray as uh, we finish and move into time of communion. Father God, thank you that your grace is sufficient for us because your power is made perfect in weakness. Help us to release our trust in our own strengths, embrace our weaknesses, and to allow your power to be made perfect through our weaknesses. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.